So you had Ron Rhodes last time we were together. Hopefully you weren't here last week, because I don't know who preached last week. Uh, No one was here last week, I trust. But uh, Ron took care of you and um, taught you on the uh, reality and the fall of Satan. I trust that was helpful. I'll try not to overlap on any of that tonight, although we'll deal with a couple of passages that he dealt with. And um, we want to get started right now. But even before we pray, uh, I want to say... I guess it was said so eloquently by C.S. Lewis in the beginning of his book, his fictional creative presentation of the demonic world in his little book called The Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read that, uh, kind of uh, fancifully tracks the training of a young demon named Wormwood by his uh, so-called uncle, his mentor named Screwtape, who writes these letters to help him uh, deal with a newly converted Christian. And... um, It certainly opens up your eyes to what we're dealing with here in the second half of our semester. But as he said in the introduction, and uh, I've tried to say that, I think, at the beginning of our series, but let me emphasize it now as we turn to the dark side, if you will, of our series, that uh, he said, we neither want to have you be ignorant of the demonic world, and uh, we certainly don't want you to become obsessed. Satan would have you do either. Uh, So let's make sure, I don't want to get to heaven and find out that our semester, the second half of our semester in 2011, uh, ended up pushing you into some level of obsession or preoccupation with the demonic or with Satan. Uh, So don't let let it do that to you. If it awakens a sense of awareness, that's good. And uh, if it gets you into the Word to understand what is ubiquitous in the Bible, a, a presentation of the spirit world, and, and, and that, that, I think, is helpful. But don't, don't go overboard on this. If someone at your table uh, takes this uh, to be their, their, their number one doctrinal interest, you be sure and rebuke them firmly and give them something else to study uh, because this needs to be ancillary to the main issues of Christianity. All right, interesting worksheet. Did you notice that? I always try to wonder how best to relay this information, but hopefully this will be um, helpful to you. We're going to cover, as you can see here on the front and back, 15 names. There are many more in the Bible, but I've picked some of the most important and the most frequently used names that God chose to describe uh, our enemy, his enemy, and ours. And so we're just going to run through those. Uh, I know that would mean at least 15 passages that we turn to. So what I've done tonight, which is unlike other nights, is I put a lot of Scripture on the overhead, uh, hopefully in bigger fonts than Dr. Rhodes used in his presentation, uh, as big as I can get them so that you can read them. Wait till we get our next church. Big jumbo screens, I hope, that you can read in high definition. Keep praying that's coming, Lord willing. So, let's go through these, and what I've chosen to do is just use the most frequently used, uh, to uh, teach on the most frequently used names, and just start at the very beginning. So, uh, on the first one here, the first line, uh, we're going to deal with this text, just jot that down, I've got it on the overhead, all but a few of them tonight, Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and you might remember this, Uh, verse 1 has his name, and also verse 2. But this is that scene in the post-exilic period after they had been off to Babylon and brought back. Uh, It says here that Zechariah the prophet was showed Joshua the high priest. That was not Moses' understudy. That's a thousand years prior to this. Uh, This is a long time after the original uh, Joshua in the Bible. But Joshua the high priest, the post-exilic prophet, I'm sorry, priest, 
He's standing before the angel of the Lord. We've already studied this passage in that regard. And then here's the use of a very frequently used word in the Bible, uh, but used in a proper way, in terms of a proper noun for the enemy of God. And it's translated here, uh, I should say transliterated here, Satan. Satan, standing before his right hand. So we've got an important guy in Israel. You've got Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. O Satan, which is interesting, the angel of the Lord, uh, the way that all unfolds. We looked at that earlier. Uh, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Uh, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Not a very complimentary way to speak of the high priest, but Christ knows who he is. Nevertheless, three uses of the word Satan here. Important to know about Satan. That's the first name, obviously, we're going to deal with. And you can see each of these slides will be one line on your worksheet. Uh, And not much to write down, but I left the boxes open on the bottom if you want to squeeze in more notes or comments uh, that are worth noting. This occurs 54 times as a proper noun relating to the one we're studying, Satan. The word is used in in, in a non-technical sense, in a non-specific sense, in many situations in the Old Testament, refer to someone in battle on the other side who's shooting arrows at you. That's That's your human Satan. This is the angelic Satan used 54 times. The word means adversary. And if you were to translate it, as some passages in the Bible do, as it relates to human opponents, that's the word they would choose to use. Adversary. Someone on the other side shooting at you. Your enemy. Now, it is not translated. It is transliterated. And I I feel like I'm so repetitive on this, but if you don't know the difference, you need to understand the difference. The word is not turned from Hebrew into English with a translated meaning. It's just brought over letter by letter. We have words in Greek like baptizo, and we just turn it into baptism. It doesn't tell us what the word means. It just gives us a name for it. Uh, the, The word baptizo means to dunk or to submerge. That's what it means. Now, Satan in Hebrew is Satan. That's the word. It's exactly how it is in English. It is transliterated simply from Hebrew into English. And I should say before that into Greek, because in Greek it's Satanos. It's basically transliterated with a Greek ending. Satanos, Satan in Hebrew, or Satan, Satanos, and we just put it into English, Satan. It doesn't tell us what it means. We need to translate it in our minds. Every time you read the word Satan, what we're talking about is the role. Every one of these, we're going to look at the aspect that this name is representing in the person. Satan, the person, the angelic person, is being described as it relates to his role. And what is it? Well, that he's our opponent. That's what adversary means. He's against us. And it is a word and a term used in military contexts. We have an enemy who's trying to destroy us. We have a campaign as the people of God in trying to move forward what is right and good in the world. And we have an opponent, Satan, Satanos, the opponent, the adversary, and he is against us. Of course, that's our perspective. Uh, as, as Ron taught last time, uh, it is originally God's opponent because we weren't even around yet. Uh, if his timing, I don't know what he taught you about the timing of the fall of Satan, but I believe it was before the creation of mankind and even before the creation of the world. That's my view. But the point is, uh, here was an enemy of God before we ever showed up. We became his enemies, just like my kids become enemies of people that don't like me. They oppose them. That's why you're the opponent of Satan. 
Uh, it's not because he doesn't like the way you look or, you know, it's because who you're connected with. Uh, you become the target of his, of his, of his anger. Uh, my dad was a cop, and I don't know why, uh, but he worked and lived in the same area that he patrolled. He patrolled the area that he lived in, which meant that I went to the school uh, where people were getting busted by my dad or their parents were. And you know what? I was a nice junior hire, uh, easy to get along with, but I became uh, the enemy of every dreg in my junior high uh, because they knew someone busted by my father. Uh, it works kind of the same today with my kids. If they don't like the church or they don't like the pastor, uh, they become targets at their school. Perhaps not as bad, I hope not as bad, uh, as I had it in junior high. Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> what's the point, though, here? The point is, you are the enemy of Satan, the Satan. He is your Satan, your Satanos, because he's God's enemy. And in that regard, I think it kind of helps get things in, in, in order, doesn't it? I mean, in our minds, it helps us recognize. It's not a war against us and, and him. It's against him and our father. We're just collateral. We're in the middle of all of this. And that may be helpful sometimes just to recognize who we need to cling to, where we need to go, and we need to recognize that really his beef ultimately is with God. That's a word, the most commonly used name, appellation for Satan in the Bible. It speaks to his role as our opponent. Secondly, it won't make you turn to this one either. The slide's coming up here in just a second. But Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse number 2, I've just given you classic examples in context that you would remember uh, of the name, the number 2 used name of Satan. Okay, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This is the Luke account of the temptation. Uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit. I think Ron talked about this last time, did he not? That this was all about God's confrontation of Satan. Uh, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the, here's the word, devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, of course, he was hungry. Uh, understatement there. What's the point, though? The point is that he's also called the devil. Okay, The devil, that's used 34 times in relation to Satan. It is a word we only find in the New Testament. There's no Old Testament equivalent for this word, at least not used as a title for Satan. Uh, here's another word that uh, at least kind of sounds transliterated. In Greek, it's uh, diablos, which is like el diablo in Spanish. Is that Spanish, right? And uh, in Latin, it's the same, diablo. It's, it's a word that uh, sounds familiar, and if you go to Mission Viejo High School, it's your mascot. And it means uh, slanderer, which a lot of students at all high schoolers are good at. Uh, <laughs> slander. Slanderer is the translation of the word. Uh, it is how you would translate it if it weren't referring to the person and you weren't putting a name on it. It wasn't the devil. You would be saying something about someone slandering. It also relates to his role. Why does God use this name to describe him? Because his role is one who seeks to defame. And it's interesting, when you're caught in the middle between two enemies, when someone hates your dad, it's funny how they call you names as the, as the kid, right? Uh, a lot of names that they wouldn't dare call the, my dad to his face, right? Um, that was and is even, as I watch in my family, how it works. 
uh, the kids get called names and they are defamed and criticized uh, because of the anger and hatred that the enemy has for the father. Um, this is his role to slander and defame. And he will do it in any way possible. Uh, he certainly wants our reputation in this world to be slandered, and he's good at that. Have you noticed that? He can take the church. It's funny how every uh, foible and weakness of everybody who's cool with the world is overlooked, but any kind of chink in the armor of those who represent God in this world uh, is exploited and slandered, and we are defamed. And Satan is behind that, as we'll see some examples of as we go along here. You're used to those two. Those are common. Satan, the devil, 34, uh, and over 50 times Satan is used. Let's look at the third one here. We'll slow down on a few of these in a minute. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse number 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. That should have been in yellow and bolded. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place in heaven uh, for them in heaven. This may come as a surprise to you, but the third most frequently used name for Satan is the word dragon. It is used 12 times uh, in reference to Satan. He is called the dragon. Now, this is a little bit more difficult for us to work through. Um, there may be some, even some Old Testament overlap with the word Leviathan. Do you remember that word, Leviathan? The Leviathan, we're not sure quite what's going on with the Leviathan. Leviathan are described as very real and present creatures in Job's account. Do you remember at the end of the book of Job, God's finally going to put Job in his place, and he does that by working through creation and pointing out some of his uh, magnificent creations in, in nature, and he speaks of the Leviathan. Well, the way he's described, we all think, wow, there's nothing like that that we know of on earth if you've done Old Testament survey with me, you know that Job is a story that precedes, really on the timeline, every other book except for Genesis. It is put back in a patriarchal period, perhaps even as a story before the flood. It goes way, way back because of the monetary references. There's no matches in later Israel's history. Because of the age of Job, if you start doing the math on how long he lives before and after all of this, you're going, people don't live that long unless we're looking antediluvian before the flood. Uh, there's a lot of things that put this story way, way back. And the only time we see the, the Leviathan described as present creatures on the earth, it's during that period. And if you studied anything about the flood and what a cataclysmic and catastrophic event that was in changing our planet, uh, it certainly shortened lifespans, it changed the climate, it changed the geology and, and the habitat of our planet, probably leading to, I would say most certainly leading to, the extinction of these giant creatures that we know of and call dinosaurs. We're called perhaps the Leviathan, it's a good theory, it seems to fit in the book of Job. Now, after the loss of these giant creatures that are described as Leviathan, or named Leviathan, and described in ways that we don't have any creatures like that, some commentators want to say they're hippopotamus or something like that, doesn't match. If you look then at later biblical history, after the flood, and later prophets, they begin to look at the Leviathan as the creature of the past, this kind of, as we do with the dinosaurs, this magnificent creature, this big, imposing creature with this great uh, uh, power and this, I mean, basically a, a monstrous 
animal that uh, is one you wouldn't want to trifle with, which is exactly how he's presented in the book of Job. That word starts to be used by later prophets in reference to the enemies of God. Uh, it is then also called, as we see in the Bible, we begin to see a connection between that and what they call the dragon. Which again, if you look that up in most dictionaries or even biblical dictionaries, they'll talk about a mythical creature. It probably has its roots in a historic creature that preceded the flood and then was tracked in terms of looking way back before the flood in later biblical history. And then people began to talk about, wow, that's like the ultimate the extreme enemy. You know, it's one thing to be met by a bear uh, in the mountains, but it's another thing to meet, you know, this gigantic, uh, wrathful creature that became, as it snowballed in people's discussion, something they begin to prefer as the dragon. So, if, if you, I mean, I'm just looking for idioms in our day, but if you're going to put a meaning to the word dragon, really in the minds of biblical writers, except for Job, Job is the exception. Uh, it, it, we're basically talking about a monster. We're talking about a scary, destructive beast that will eat you for lunch and look for another guy uh, to, to, you know, to have for dessert. That's the picture of the dragon. Twelve times Satan is referred to as the dragon. In Revelation 12, the great dragon. He's also called the great red dragon. Many different ways he's described with different adjectives. But clearly the focus is terrifying, this will scare you, it's destructive, it's total devastation animal. That's the dragon. So what is this referring to? What aspect of, of Satan are we to learn when God's calling him the dragon? Well, that he has incredible power. His power is imposing. You don't want to trifle with Satan. And I'm starting to think through this now. You remember back in Jude, we talked about Michael, the archangel, who is, as far as we know, the highest ranking, most powerful being in the angelic class. He is now having a dispute about the body of Moses, and what does he do? Defers. He doesn't even rebuke him directly. There's the pattern. And in the Bible, in Jude, the false prophets are characterized by a kind of overweening pride and this, this haughty kind of, 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 of hubris that makes them think they can just command spirits and they can command spiritual forces in a way that, that, that really springs from some kind of, of inflated view of their own authority. And Jude then connects their behavior to the behavior of someone who has far more power than any teacher in Jude's day. And he says even Michael wouldn't rebuke. Uh, and take on this, this, this high-ranking creature. That's a lesson for us. Uh, a lot of charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches and flamboyant churches like to talk about these things like they're no big deal or they've got it figured out. Uh, and I often say they're commanding Satan to do a lot of things. They can't even command their kids to clean up their room successfully. Uh, I don't even understand how they think they have the kind of authority that they pretend that they have uh, when they're dealing with Satan. He's called the dragon. I think that would be good for us to remember uh, when we start to figure this out and, and think we've got it all tucked away in our theology. God wants us in the third most frequently used word for Satan to remember that he is an imposing power, a destructive beast, a monster, a dragon, the dragon, the great dragon. Number four, was that helpful? Number four, John 17, 15. John chapter 17, verse 15. I got the slide coming up on this one too. I'll turn you in the Bible to a few of these that I want you to mark up your margins with. 
But uh, John 17, 14, and 15, I put on the slide here. I've given them, this is the great high priestly prayer of Christ. He's about to go to the cross. He's praying, and he says, I've given them your word, speaking of his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from, here's our fourth one, the evil one. He's called the evil one. This is Ten times uh, in the Bible, he is described as the evil one. Porneros is this great, it's not great, it's a terrible Greek word. Uh, it's used 51 times in the New Testament in, in translated uh, wicked, evil. Interestingly enough, uh, anything that's perilous, anything that's bad, anything that's corrupted, anything that's diseased, anything that will cause you sickness, annoyance, hardship, even sometimes in a task, is porneros. It's something that is described as laborious, hard, too difficult to finish. Anything that creates that feeling of being overwhelmed, uh, but in a morally bad context, I mean, that's the non-technical use. And then the force of the word is, that's what evil is. It's, it's like a disease. It's something that causes hardship. It's something that puts you in peril. Uh, so the evil one, that is our imposing enemy. Ten times, what does it mean? We're talking about an evil, wicked person. And you know how I use the word person. That means they're not you know, an animal or a thing. They have an intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, and so he is a person. He's an angelic person. Uh, he is wicked. He's corrupt. This speaks to his character, obviously. His intentions are not good. He does not want to do you any good even though he wants to sell himself as someone who wants to give you good. His character is thoroughly sinful. It falls short of anything good. It is not about your benefit. It is not about your, your ultimate good, though his strategies may include comfort and pleasure. The end is not what will produce any of that. Did you follow what I mean by 51 times this word is used in the New Testament? Ten of those times it's used either with an article, in a nominative case, in some way, it's presented to us as the person. Even, do you remember the end of the Lord's Prayer? You remember this. And deliver us from evil. Remember that? Do you know how your, your modern translations put that, right? The more we looked at that grammar there, there is the pronoun there. Deliver us from the evil. Uh, that's why modern translations say from the evil one. Because it's not just delivering us from evil in general. The focus of the Lord's Prayer is Deliver us from the one who wants to do evil to us. Just like when Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to, your adversary wants to sift you like wheat, uh, but I prayed for you. That's the point of the Lord's Prayer, that you would be saved from the evil one who wants to, as Peter said, like a roaring lion, he'd like to devour you. The evil one. Number five, Revelation 20. You may think this is a more common reference, but it's not used as many times as you might think, though it's used five times in the Old Testament. Here's the word, Revelation 20. I'll give you two verses, verses 1 and 2. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, we already got that one, the ancient, here's the word, serpent. The ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. We've got all those words already. Satan's the number one, devil the number two, dragon. Now we have serpent and bound him for a thousand years. That's going to be a good time where he is not actively doing what he does best. So, what's the word? Serpent. It's used ten times. 
Five times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament, referring to Satan. Now, this is a harder one. We had a snake in our office from Revival. I guess no one wanted it, so it stayed in our office way too long. You have a natural aversion, you should at least, uh, to snakes, right? Because they're creepy. You know, I know you can be a stud and say they don't bother me and all that, or maybe you've you know, gotten used to them, but everyone's first encounter with a snake is usually a bad one because they're creepy. Why they don't have any arms? <laughs> you can't, can't put a vest on a snake. You know, it's just, it, they're weird little animals that just want to uh, slither around, right? They just, they have that sense. Now, if you've ever seen uh, a snake bite, that is a, um, which I've seen, that is a bizarre kind of experience because they get to a place where they, you know, slither around and they coil up and then they, what's the word we use? Strike, right? Now, that's a word that we don't use, you know, for very many animals. That's, you know, a frog strikes, I suppose, but he doesn't seem as imposing. He's gross, too. Uh, but there's something, here's the word I want to use, there's something treacherous about a, about a serpent. That, I believe, now I, I'm on out of a limb here, this is, you know, First Opinions 316, but um, I believe that the word that is characterizing Satan as snake, as serpent, uh, has to do with the sense of how they strike, how they slither, how they, with a, a sense of kind of scheming near you and then striking, uh, it has that sense of, of deception, betrayal. Uh, if you look up the word treacherous, it's a good word, but we don't use it as much as perhaps we should because it really describes well the exploitation of trust, right? That, that you, you are coaxed into trusting someone or something and then it betrays you then it strikes you then it gets you the smooth scheming movements of a snake to, to get them and i think in our common language when you end up calling someone a snake it's usually in the right context right you don't say that just to the average person when you say the words you snake which i'd prefer you probably not say but when you feel like saying it, or you do blurt it out, right? It's, it's someone who's deceived you. It's someone who's gotten in there and, and, and you, you know, gotten your trust in some way, and then they struck and they betrayed. Uh, they, 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 it was a bait and switch. That is the... I guess it's like this. Worms are kind of like snakes, small versions, but they don't strike, right? They don't strike like snakes do. I mean, it's not just that they're skeevy little, you know, slithering animals. So are snails, right? But they don't strike. That's the issue, I think, that is being communicated by even how we are introduced to Satan in the biblical narrative, which is he warms up and gets Eve to warm up to his logic, to his pitch, to his temptation, and he exploits the trust that Eve gives her and he then is able to strike. And he does. He accomplishes his nefarious goals by being able to, with treachery, bring Eve in and then lower the boom. She trusted him. She trusted his advice. And he deceived her. The aspect that this speaks to, again, is the role of Satan. Uh, he is treacherous. Or to put it in terms that I think is most classic, he is the tempter. 
And that's what all temptation is. If sin didn't have temptation as a part of it, none of us would do it, right? If it were all something where we felt the guilt of it before we took the bait, no one would be a sinner. But that's how it works. Uh, it, It lures us in and it gets us to a place of saying, okay, this is good which is exactly what happened in the garden. It's good for food. It's good pleasing to the eye. It's going to make you wise. This is what you want. And then it bites with that sense of guilt. So many examples in the Scripture I can think of. When Tamar was raped, remember that example? Remember how desperately he wanted her, Amnon? He was sick over his lust for his his half-sister, right? And, And then what happens? Soon as he has her, what does he do? He says he hated her more than he had loved her and told her to get lost. That sense of of being lured in, that's a classic example of temptation. Uh, And and, and everything becomes so clear after the tempter strikes. Uh, That's the picture, I believe, of why Satan is called a snake. And instead of calling him a serpent, it might be better for us to revert to, as I pondered this and studied it, how I think we use the word snake. You're a snake. What does that mean? You're a deceiving, treacherous person. Uh, and, and, and Satan is a snake. That'd be a better way to maybe have that hit our mental verbiage and our vocabulary in our head. Number six, Rev 9. We got seals, we got trumpets, we got bowls, all of them representing new waves of God's wrath on mankind. I know that doesn't fit modern evangelical theology. God never gets mad. Jesus is nice. But uh, he comes back here with a vengeance in Rev 9, along with the whole rest of Rev, what, chapter 6 through 19. And he's pouring out all this, this wrath. And if you just skim through the first, I don't know, seven, six, seven verses, well, look at verse 6, just the height of the torment here. In those days, people will seek death, this is Rev 9, 6, and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts, these were these demonic beings that were sent out, we're like horses prepared for battle. This is all, I mean, remember, this is all apocalyptic. It's a multimedia kind of trippy picture of, of symbolic picture of what's going to happen. On their heads, what looked like, a crown, like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They don't have your best interest in mind here, clearly. Verse 9, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. They were impervious to defense. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. It was an imposing, scary, frightening sound. They had tails um, and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tail. This is all apocalyptic about the satanic or demonic attack. Verse 11, here's the key. They have a king over them, The angel, we already know he's an angel. We didn't deal with that label. The angel of the bottomless pit, if we were going to add more, that would be another name for him. His name in Hebrew, now this is interesting. Underline it. Abaddon, right? Abaddon. And in Greek, Apollyon. Abaddon, Apollyon. Now, our Bible doesn't translate those. He just transliterates the word Abaddon and transliterates the Greek word Apollyon. Those two words, though, uh, mean the same thing. Uh, One is really describing the result. Abaddon and Apollyon. So let's put the word up, Abaddon, and and in Greek, it's just the other word for it, Apollyon. This is used seven times. It's only once in the New Testament, but six times in the Old Testament, we find the word Abaddon. 
Now, sometimes the word Abaddon is used in a context that is um, metaphorically representing death. You remember the word Sheol? Has that been a bit of a mystery to you? Sheol, and we think, well, that's hell. It's not hell. Uh, it, it really is, is describing death uh, because everyone in the Old Testament goes to the proverbial Sheol. Sheol and Abaddon are often used together. Sheol describes the place of the dead, if you want to use it that way. Uh, if you've studied anything on thanatology or death or you've read anything in, in, in cultural studies about death, they talk about the netherworld, the afterworld, the, the place of darkness, the place of the grave. That's probably what Sheol is trying to represent, the, the, the place of the dead. Abaddon is paired with that oftentimes in the Old Testament. And Abaddon, Abaddon means destruction or destroyer, when it moves from the realm of death and destruction, we use those two words together, to the person behind it all. Uh, in our, in our uh, idioms of English and, and, and Western uh, idioms and, and analogies, we talk about the, the, uh, uh, the grim reaper, right? That's the picture. Someone who wants to kill you and destroy you. We talk about death and destruction. That word destruction is a Hebrew word that is used to talk about the, the, the afterworld, the death, and then what comes with that death. And then it starts to personify or become a word, a label, an appellation for the guy who's behind it all, who wants to see it happen. Even in the New Testament, Hebrews talks about being freed from the fear of death, right? And the one who has the power of that. And he, he refers to Satan. Satan is this angel of death, so to speak, right? Though he's dispatched by God in the whole Exodus narrative, the point is he wants to kill and destroy. Remember when Jesus said in John 10, that's what the thief comes to do, to kill, to steal, and destroy. That is the Old Testament reference without seeing the word Abaddon or Apollyon. That's the reference in the New Testament that we see consistency there. The thief is the destroyer the one who wants to deceive people. And if you haven't read screw tape letters, I mean it is I mean it's not a doctrinal treatise, but it certainly has a great way of weaving the concern of the demonic spirits in our world to get us dead and destroyed, dead and punished. He's a loser, he's going to be destroyed, that's his concern for us. Kill the kids, destroy them. And by kids, I mean mankind. This certainly speaks to his role. He's the destroyer. He's the one of destruction. And to put it in common terms, he's, he's the killer. He's the killer, the destroyer. He wants to end things. He wants to end your life. And then he'd like to see you suffer for your sins and have God's justice rain on you the way it's going to rain down on him. You could do a computer search on, on the word Abaddon and you'll find it in Job, Psalms, Proverbs. You'll find it throughout the Old Testament, uh, usually in connection with the grave, with death, or with Sheol. Seven. Matthew 12. These few here, and I'm going in order, in a descending order uh, of the frequency, these all need explanation, particularly because this one, is, this one is so commonly used. The next couple you'll find are... A lot of misunderstanding about. But this one's used because it's been picked up in popular culture. But we need to understand it. Let's pick the narrative up here in verse 22, Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Christ, and Christ healed him. So the man spoke and saw. 
And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Even that. There's so much richness in the Christology of what they expected here from this son of David that the prophets talked about. 24. When the Pharisees were so jealous of Christ and all of his notoriety, when they heard it, they said, it is only Beelzebul, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. That's the word. Write it down the way it is in your ESV. Beelzebul. Now, you know, in our Bible uh, survey of, or our study of, of how we had the Bible come to be, this word is in some manuscripts, a minority of late manuscripts, changed from Beelzebul to Beelzebub. Okay? Now, let's give you some history and background on this just a little bit. By the way, we should read the rest of verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, somewhere on your worksheet, jot this down. Beelzebul means the lord of the house, the leader of the house, the one in charge of the home, the one in charge of the palace. Beelzebul. If you go in the Old Testament and you look up the word Beelzebul in the uh, ESV, and sometimes you need a dash between Bel and Zebul, you will find the, the E's sometimes will turn to A's, Baal, and you know that, Baal is the god, right? And then you'll see uh, Zebul, which refers to the palace or the sanctuary or the house. You'll see it as one of the Philistine gods. Sometimes you'll see it as the god of Ekron. Ekron's only a big city in northern Philistia. So it's the Philistines' god uh, was Beelzebul, okay? the lord of the palace, the lord of the, of, the, of, of the sanctuary, the lord of the home, the lord of the house, the captain of the home. Israel, at least this is the theory, changed the word from Beelzebul to Beelzebub, and in some late manuscripts in the New Testament, that translation, or that manuscript, it was made it into the manuscripts because that was a way to change this from Beelzebul, the lord of the palace, the lord of the home, the lord of the household, to Beelzebub, which is the lord of the flies, which is an insult because that's your god, <laughs> uh, Philistines. So when the Israelites mocked the Philistines and their god, they mocked him by... Uh, changing his name intentionally most commentators and scholars and you know ancient near eastern people who study that stuff think that it was an intentional mockery and slanderous way to refer to their deity uh wouldn't make it you know today with all the politically correctness of how christians are supposed to act but they said your god's no god uh your god is not the lord of the palace the lord of the sanctuary the lord of the house he's the lord of the flies which like you, when you have them flying around you, you want them to go away. <laughs> uh, you, you don't want the flies or shoe fly, don't bother me, right? We don't like flies. Uh, so Beelzebub is what actually makes it into some manuscripts, and particularly in the KJV, which uses late inferior manuscripts, um, will end up there, Beelzebub. And even some other translations will follow that, Beelzebub, which is a variant, which is probably the mockery of how the Jews called the god of the Philistines, the god of Ekron, as it's called. Seven times, by the way, it's used in the New Testament. I'm not counting Old Testament variants, which you can look up on your own, and I didn't count those this afternoon. Now, if it's Beelzebul or Baal-zebub, it's either lord of the house or lord of the flies. When 
the Pharisees said, and they probably said Beelzebul, it was still, in their minds, a reference to Satan. And they picked up on that as the foreign false god. They then applied it to the archenemy of God and the enemy and opponent of the people of God. So when they spoke of him that way, it was a reference to his, his rank, if we stick with the original meaning of Beelzebul, which is he's, he's in charge. He's in charge of the, of the palace of, of the enemy, which in that case in the Old Testament was the Philistines. Everyone looks up to their god, and their god was Beelzebul. And then when we apply it to Satan, and the Jews did that, they said that's who we're talking about. That's the enemy's god. Uh, what they meant by that, of course, is that he's in charge of the demonic spirits. He's in charge, as it says in the next line, the prince of the demons. So what is his rank? The point of Beelzebul is that he is the ultimate leader of the enemy team. It's a reference to the aspect of his character or his nature that refers to his rank. Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Does that help on that? I'm sure you've heard that tossed around. But usually it's tossed around as Beelzebub in popular culture. Number eight, John chapter 12 verse 31. John 12, 31, I've got that on the overhead for you right here. Helpful in many ways. Speaking of rank, uh, look at this statement from Christ. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That is a reference not about the doing, actually. It's about the payment or the victory or the authority to do it. As we know, he is much like with uh, picture David being anointed by Samuel and saying, now it's time to get that guy out of the, out of the White House, so to speak, right? Saul's going to be gone. Well, when he was anointed, then it was done. In God's eyes, David was, in, was, was now anointed as the king, uh, but he didn't have his inauguration for quite some time, many years later. Same way here, Jesus is speaking about the fact that because of his death, he will now gain the authority to be the victor over the enemy who was holding people in fear of the death that comes and the destruction that comes with it. And the point is that he is winning the battle but is not going to take his great power and begun, begin to reign until the end. And that's why we're in this little period between the, the anointing of the king, the authorization of the king, and the inauguration of the king, ruler of this world. I like the phrase, this world. I was once chided by a pastor for saying that all the time. You always say this world. Why do you say this world? It's the world. I say this world because I don't like this world, and this world is not the world that matters. Uh, and Jesus talked about the ruler of this world because right now he is the ruler of this world. It's used three times in the Bible, and it refers to the fact that he's governing the people of this world. Uh, he is leading them. Cosmos is the word, and it has to do with right the, the whole the whole thing down here. He is he is working in this world. I know people struggle with this, but it has to do with with his authority, and we don't like to think that he has any authority because Christ came, did his thing, and deauthorized him. He he may have done so judicially and legally, but he's yet to take his power and begin to reign. The difference there is critically important for us to understand, and that's why the prosperity guys and all these you know guys that are saying things that is what we call an overrealized eschatology. I like to call it that. They think then is now. It's not now. Paul addressed this to the Corinthians: "You become kings, and that without us." No, this isn't yet to, to be. The kingdom has not fully arrived. And, and right now we need to remember Saul's still on the throne. 
Uh, I thought Christ was on the throne. We sing songs about Christ being on the throne. Yeah, but he's not taken his power and begun to reign yet. He may reign in our hearts, we like to say, and I like the fact that your allegiance is with him, but much like in the cave of Adelam, when the malcontents went out to be with David, they may be with the right leader, but the leader is not enthroned yet on his rightful throne. And the world is not governed by God. Have you noticed? Watch the news tonight. It's governed by Satan. And that, I think, is a sobering reality that we need to remember. And if you don't feel it, you're not doing enough evangelism or standing up for Christ the way you should. Every Christian should feel this at least a few times a week, that this world is not our home. And you'll start to say things like your pastor. You'll call it this world. And maybe some pastor uh, will say, why do we say that? Stop saying that. It's all right to say it. Jesus said it. And he said it often, this world. I'll give you another example. Number nine. No, no, this one isn't it. But coming up. Another one where he says this world. This will be helpful on a few levels, I hope. Isaiah chapter 14 has a name for Satan. Unfortunately, it's confusing. Uh, and we need to work through this carefully. Let's read the ESV, which is the Bible you have there in front of you, I assume. Most translations look something like this. Isaiah chapter 14. You dealt with Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 last week, or two weeks ago, right? We were all in there about the fall of Satan, and you remember, I'm sure he talked about the fact that this is about the king of Babylon, but overlaid is some language that can't possibly refer to the king of Babylon. And then also in Ezekiel... um, we have uh, the king of Tyre, and then yet we have something overlaid that just can't be the king of Tyre. So we assume, clearly, this is, this is Satan. Uh, and, and he's described this way in verse number 12 in the ESV. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you're brought low to Sheol. Uh, There's our word we talked about earlier. To the far reaches of the pit. Verse 12, O day star, son of dawn. Okay? We need to write down the word, and we need to say we've reached a name that's only used once, and then we need to do some language work. I hate to say, but let's do some language work. Day star, comma, son of dawn, or son of the dawn, son of the morning. Day star, son of, son of dawn, son of the dawn. Okay? Now, you don't need to write all this down, obviously, but put something that's going to help you remember this. Of course, Isaiah was written in the 8th century B.C., okay? Here's the Hebrew phrase, and remember it reads not from left to right, but from right to left, okay? Halel ben Shachar. Shachar, I'll say it the anglicized way, Shachar. Halel ben Shikar. Okay? Halel ben Shikar. Keep that in mind. We'll, we'll unravel this. When the Latin Bible came to be in the 4th century AD, okay? The Latin Vulgate, we call it. Uh, vulgar, that just means the common language. Now, today it means worse than common. Uh, but Vulgate, that's what it means. Latin, the common language of the people. We got it out of Greek and Hebrew into Latin. It reads this way. Lucifer, qui, mane, orabaris. Not fabaris, by the way. Uh, orabaris. Okay? Now, this is the word we haven't gotten yet. And I know you think, oh, that's, that's his name, right? Lucifer. We got this word, Lucifer, from the Latin text. 
And, and that simply means if you were to translate both Hallel and Lucifer in Latin, you would get the word light bearer. You'd get the word uh, shining one. Uh, if you look it up in, uh, in a good, any thorough Latin lexicon, as, as I have just again today, you'll see the word next to it, Venus, right? Uh, because that was the, the bright morning star or star of dusk, right? When we see the moon and the star in the, in the Islamic flags, it's the morning star. It's the star that we last see. It's the last one to fade. And the strongest one we see first in the evening, second from the sun, you know all this. But that is the bright morning star, the light bearer. The word in Latin for that is Lucifer. Now, if you don't know this, you didn't go through our Bible study. When, when the King James Bible was written in the 17th century, when it was translated, they relied heavily, not only on late Greek manuscripts, but they relied very heavily on the Latin manuscripts of the Vulgate. Often they pulled and lifted terms from the Vulgate and threw them down into English. Here's a case, we don't have this very often, but here's a case where the Latin word is not translated and the Hebrew word, Hallel, is not translated. It is simply transliterated, not from Hebrew, that would have been better, it's transliterated from Latin and it ends up in the English text. Lucifer, son of the morning. Why are you giving us all this? Here's why. Uh, Well, there's several reasons. You should know it, for one. But uh, there are still people running around who, um, who keep telling us, for instance, the King James Bible is the Bible you ought to read. It was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It should be good enough for us. Uh, I mean, that's some of them, they don't say that, but some of them, feel, it's like they think that. Um, they believe that every other translation, particularly the, the modern translations, are satanic. And one of the places, and I've had them come to me from very early on in my ministry, the one verse they like to show me, among others, is this one. And they say, what does your Bible say? And the modern Bibles will say, uh, they'll say uh, day star, morning star, star of the morning. And, and they'll say, now read mine. What does it say? Lucifer. Now who is it? Well, the context is talking about the fall of Satan. So it's, it's Satan. Yeah, but who, our Bible says Lucifer. Your Bible says morning star. And then they like to take you to verses like, uh, you can write these down, 2 Peter 1.19 and Revelation 22.16. 2 Peter 1.19 reads this way. We have the prophetic word made fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, And then they'll say, who's the morning star? And I'll say, ah, oh, Jesus, right? And then they'll turn us to Revelation 22.16. Did I give you that one yet? Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. They'll say, who's the morning star? I say, Jesus. It's usually the right answer in most Bible discussions, but Jesus is. And then they'll turn me back to Isaiah 14. They'll say, your Bible says the one that fell from heaven is Jesus. Because yours says morning star. Mine says Lucifer. Yours is demonic. Mine's biblical. Mine's the God version. There's a technical theological word for it. Baloney. Uh, (laughs) It's nonsense. You can pull this slide out. Take a picture in your mind. Hillel ben Shakar means the morning star, right? 
the son of the dawn. Or Lucifer uh, means the light, in Latin, light bearer of the early morning. Here's one of those weird things that happened with the, with the 1611 King James Bible. They took a Latin word and they threw it onto an English text uh, because most people knew Latin. And they knew that was the, the, the name that they would use for Venus or the morning star. And they threw it down because that's what Hillel means. And they said, uh, there you go. And then today we've said, well, the context is about the fall of the enemy of God. His name is Lucifer. It's not his name. This is the description of him. Are you following me on this? And the description of him is he's the morning star. Well, how do you... You can't... You just showed us it refers to Jesus. Here's some other words that refer to Jesus. Uh, God. Have we seen that one used of Satan? Ruler. That one's used of Jesus. We've seen that. He's called the ruler. Prince used of Satan. Right? There's a lot of words that are used of Jesus that are also used of Satan. Why? Because one is real and the other one is a counterfeit. One is real and wanted to be the one and only, and yet he was just one reflecting the glory. Right? Was Lucifer something? Oh, absolutely. He was something. Right? He was like a morning star. What does that mean? When all others fade, that one's still visible. Let's put it this way. The meaning is... He is a prominent angel. He's prominent. He outshines the others. Guess who else outshines the other angels? Michael, right? Um, But who outshines everyone? Who's the ultimate morning star? Christ is, right? I have no problem with that. Matter of fact, I can even go further. We're going to talk about really getting into a discussion with the KJV only guy. Do you know that Jesus is also called the serpent? John 3, do you remember that one? What does it say about Jesus? He says, like the serpent in the desert, he will be lifted up, right? And when he's lifted up, no one seems to choke on that because that's in the King James Version and every other version, right? Who's the serpent? Who is it? Is it Satan or is it Jesus? Well, it's Jesus in that passage because he's the one who heals them, right? They look to him for salvation. It doesn't mean he's the same person. Come on, it's nonsense. It's a junior high argument, but we should, we should be over it. But I, I, I still get that one. People still say that one. And if you don't deal with any of those people, praise God. Praise the Lord. But I still have to deal with them, and maybe you'll run into one who tells you that, I don't go to that church. I've had people leave the church. I can't go to that church because you don't use the 1611 King James Bible. That's too bad. All right, what does this speak to, the aspect of Satan? Well, before his fall, it certainly spoke to his glory. And what about his glory? It was distinctive. It was surpassing. It was outstanding. It was great. That's why he was even tempted in the first place, because of his great beauty. He sat back and considered himself, and instead of considering himself in light of God, he considered himself in light of himself, and that's the problem with people. They measure themselves, as Paul said, by themselves, and they get puffed up, and he fell because he was glorious compared to others. He didn't compare himself to God. So the day star, if you look, by the way, in your concordance for Lucifer, in any modern translation, you're not going to find the word Lucifer. Right? But we know him in our pop culture as that's the proper name of Satan, Lucifer. If you want to, Lucifer, remember this, if you remember nothing else, is the Latin word for morning star. That's what you need to remember. Lucifer is the Latin word for morning star. Venus, that's really if you want to be astronomically correct. We're talking about the, the thing that we see because of where it is in orbit. We see it on the horizon at dusk and dawn depending on the time of, of, of the month. All right, that clear anything up? or ask questions you weren't asking, so it was interesting, but I didn't care about that. Okay, I did. Ezekiel 18. No, Ezekiel 28. 
You looked at these passages last week, I, I, I assume, but we should look at this one too because it's close. Now remember, Ron did talk about this, right? King of Babylon, some statements overlaid on top of the king of Babylon refer to some, somebody other than the king of Babylon, perhaps because he's actively involved in directing and governing the king of Babylon. And here in this text, the king of Tyre, same thing. We have words that just can't fit the king of Tyre. Verse 14, for instance, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Now those words are the words we need to consider. I placed you, God says. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. Whatever those are, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Now, I don't know who that describes except an angel that's holy, right? Till unrighteousness was found in you and the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Whatever that means, it's a description here of the fall of, of Satan, okay? So let's put this down, guardian cherub, the guardian cherub. Matter of fact, if you want to use his whole title in verse 14, it's the anointed guardian cherub. Now those are Bible words, so let's just get them into the regular vocabulary of our day. When you are anointed in a biblical ancient Near Eastern or at least an Israeli context, what does that mean? So what did you do today? Well, I got anointed. What, what would that mean? Well, I guess technically that would mean someone poured oil on your head. Ooh, did you get it all out of your hair? Well, yeah, but that's not the context. The context is you got oil poured on your hair by the representative of God to either install you as a prophet, priest, or king. At least that's the human use of the anointing. The anointing was used to say you're set apart. It was the inauguration. I do, you know, solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That was the picture of being authorized, okay? In this context, he's authorized as a guardian cherub. Cherub is the class of angels we looked at early in the, in the semester, earlier in the semester. Guardian was what we often see these cherubs doing, like the seraphim. They're always near God's presence, or at least the focalized personification of God's presence. He's there in these visions. They are there in the visions of God all around him, like bodyguards, like regal attendants. That's what these angels were. And in this case, he was authorized, as it says in the next line. I placed you there. God said, you're the man to stand guard here with the other cherubs. And even remember, the first, real, uh, we, the first reference to the cherub is when they guarded the, the way to the garden after they got kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve. And then we saw them beat by the craftsmen into these these angelic beings on the top of the box of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. Ark means box, the box of the, of the promise of God on the tablets. That was even a picture of them guarding that sacred place. Guardian cherubs, the guardian angels, the authorized guardian angels, the authorized, or to put it this way, uh, only used one time, by the way, the angelic bodyguard, right? That was the picture. I know that's a bit common, but, but that's the idea. They were special regal attendance to the presence, the focalized or, or embodied presence of God, whether it was on the top of the box where the Shekinah, quote-unquote, Shekinah glory dwelt, or whether it was in the visions that the prophets had of God. They were surrounded by angels. The ones closest to God in that visual manifestation of it were the guardian cherubs. Satan was a guardian cherub. And just like Morning Star, this isn't trying to say something good about him now. This is trying to say something about the privilege that he had. 
That's what it speaks to. If you're an authorized guardian cherub placed there by God Himself, then we're talking about your privilege was extreme. I mean, you had the, you had the, the sweetest job in the universe. That's the picture here. Why is He called this? Because He had amazing privilege. Number 11, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Don't need to turn to this one. I will have a slide up here for you. You remember this passage? Another this world quote. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, people don't get it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, hey, there's the word God. Wow, who's God? Again, this is a reference to Satan, the God of this world. This world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, The name here, then, of Satan, in this case, is the God of this world. It occurs only one time. What does this mean? Well, the word for world, as I said earlier, is usually the word cosmos, the world system. In this case, it's uh, ion, which is, ion is the word uh, for the, the, the age, the, the, the time period. Uh, he oversees this particular age. This age would be another way to translate, and some translations do. He is the God of this present period of time. That again speaks to the temporary nature of the fact that he rules, but his time is short. He's already lost his right to rule at the cross, and one day he'll be kicked out and run out of town. But he, for the time being, is the God of this world. Now, God is a big word, is it not? What does God do? He sits back, oversees things. He's in charge. He's the one who has control. And this name of of Satan speaks to the control that he has. And when you're using the word God, I don't use that word of people very often. That must mean you have massive control. And he does. Have you noticed the massive control he has? And if you don't sit back and see that, you're not in the Word. Because if your mind is saturated in the Word of God, all you have to do is look at the world, read its newspapers, peruse its magazines, check out the internet websites that talk about commentating on the world scene, and you'll say it couldn't be more antithetical to what God wants. Why? Because God is not the God of this age. Oh, I thought He was. He's not the God of this age. Satan is the God of this age who's blinding people from seeing truth. God, though knows that his time is short, and it's all under the ultimate sovereign control of God, and that's why it's used with a small g, a mechanism we use in English to make it clear that we're talking about the God of the universe. We're talking about the God of the present age. 12, Ephesians 2. This one's even more frustrating. I've got a slide for you here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, here's our title, the prince of the power of of the air. Then he defines them again. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Wow. That's a mouthful. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This phrase, the prince of the power of the air, of course only used once. We're all on the one-timers at this point in terms of uh, occurrences. Think about how this is even said. I mean, this is a powerful statement here. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is working in people, the prince of the power of the air. I put it this way. He is guiding the culture, right? Culture is an interesting word. Everyone knows what it means, but they have a hard time defining it. But you do understand what I mean by that. The whole system, the way things work, the values, the things that people like, the things that people prefer, the things that people excuse versus the things that people condemn, all of that is the culture, the values of our life. 
in this community in which we live called planet Earth. He is the one overseeing it. Prince means he is the one directing it. He's calling shots. I thought God was sovereign. You always talk about God being the king and God being God and God being in charge. I understand that. He is here, but here, the manager that we deal with is Satan. We're dealing here with his influence. That's the aspect that we're talking about. And how is his influence? It's vast. His influence is vast, far more than we think. You need, if you get this right, you see that we are living in a world that is not at all complementary to our Christianity. And the more you study Satan and his schemes, you'll recognize we are swimming upstream every day of our life. If you get comfortable here, you'll get washed downstream. Don't, because the prince of the power of the air is doing his work. A couple more here. Rev 12, 10. One-time use in the Bible. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and of the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. There's the shift. When is it going to happen? It's in the future. It's not now. We don't have an over-realized eschatology. We understand eschatology is in the future. The end times thing is when he's going to take his authority and he's going to make it happen. And he has to take care of the middle manager, the God of this age, the, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. He's got to go away. He's called here the accuser in this picture in prophecy in Rev 12 where he's going to replace him. The accuser. Okay, That's the, that's the word. That's the title. Occurs once. An accuser is someone who's always going around assigning blame. That is his job, one of his jobs at least. That is certainly a a depiction of his role to assign blame. Now here's the thing about Christianity, of course. I am blameworthy, I am guilty, but my guilt and my blame have been redirected to the cross. The problem is now, he even says in Rev 12, that he's doing it toward the brothers, our lives. Christians now are being accused and blamed. He blames us. We feel that sometimes. He blames us before God. Christ defends us there. Christ should, and His Word should defend us in our own conscience and mind. We know we're losers. We know we're sinners. We know we're guilty. But the point for us is to trust in what Christ has done for us and recognize that the blame, as much as He wants to assign it, has been assigned to the cross. And that's what we're doing. His role here is to be a critic. And... um, By that, I don't mean the kind of critic that says, you know, Mike, it would be better if you did things this way. That's constructive criticism. This is destructive criticism, and that's his role, and that's why he's he's called the accuser. 14, John 8, 44. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil. There's one of the words we've already dealt with. And your will, Jesus, another one of his uplifting sermons he was preaching. That's sarcasm. I mean, if, if, if you had a preacher that preached like this and put that in the second person said those kinds of things, whew, here he is, though. Jesus, the ultimate prince of preachers. He says to them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the phrase I'd like to put out there. The father of lies the father of lies. Used only one time of him. Nothing makes my wife more angry than for us to sit down and and watch a program or to read an article or to go through a news story that we just read on the internet and and see people lying, right? I mean, it it is the strategy of the world. 
to do what they want to do, to get out of whatever they want to get out of. And she often talks about, oh, we just need a truth serum of some kind. Uh, so she's working on that uh, to try and help our world out. But uh, that, that is frustrating. And the point is, the Bible says we, that is his whole process to get more and more people involved in doing what he does. Here were the Pharisees who are being nailed as liars, and they're liars because they're in league with their father, and their father is the father of lies. They're in league with Satan, and Satan is all about getting people to lie. He is a liar. That is his nature. He misleads and misinforms people. That is his job. That is his role. And again, this title speaks to his role, and his role is to deceive. His role is to deceive, as Lewis's book puts so well, in is any way that we can that he can, uh, it, it is insightful as he says. If 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 he can make you not believe in him, great. There's one way to deceive. If he can make you be preoccupied with him, great. That'd be a way to get you uh, on the wrong path. Uh, I love it when he's talking about the war. He wrote that in 1942, and he talks a lot about the war in these letters. But he says, well, what should we do with him? Should we make him a pacifist or a patriot? Well, I don't know. Let's see. And because and, we can work with either one of those. Because the, the deal with Satan is not, he doesn't have this one track. He will deceive in any way that he can to get us going in the direction that he'd like us to go. But his strategy, his role is to deceive. Last one. I don't want you to misunderstand that last text in John because of this text in 2 Corinthians 11. And I'd like you to turn to this one. This is the last one of the night. Let's get some context, though, and start in verse 12. Verse 14 is the last title we want to deal with here. But 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. if he's a liar and there's no truth in him, well, then he would never speak the truth and he'd be easy to detect. That's a problem, though. Uh, he's too smart for that, obviously. And so, like every false teacher, he's got a strategy that involves a lot of truth. Matter of fact, most of what he says to us is truthful. It's what he mixes it with. Verse 12, what I'm doing, I will continue to do, Paul says, in order to undermine the claim of those who would claim, would like to claim rather, that in their boasted mission, they work under the same terms that we do. They don't. Such men are false apostles, right? These aren't guys... uh, you know, drinking blood out of the skull, as I like to say. These are, these are guys in church carrying Bibles around. They're deceitful workers. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as, here's the name I'd like us to get, an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. That is so important. Because if you think this should be easy to figure out, he's a liar, he's a bad guy, it's always going to be bad and good, it's never that way with him. That's why Paul says we're not ignorant of his schemes. His schemes are to wrap truth in, I'm sorry, to wrap lies in truth. That's how he operates. That's how false teaching operates. That's why people that go around ignorantly saying, well, they love Jesus, well, I love Jesus, and they love Jesus, he never leaves the Bible. That's not enough. We've got to get down to brass tacks as it relates to what the Bible says about the gospel, about being saved, about who God is, about the exclusivity of Christ, about heaven and hell. Those are important things because Satan will always work, only one occurrence, by trying to disguise his lies in the truth. He always wraps his lies in truth. And that's how he pulls off the best kind of lying, right? That's the way he deceives so don't be a simpleton. So many simpletons out there in the name of Christianity. Well, he loves Jesus. All the people he'll send your way will do that. This relates to his strategy here. It's almost not really a name. It says he just 
He disguises himself as, but still it's a name that I think we should be accustomed to. Satan is an angel of light. What does that mean? That sounds good. It's not good because his strategy is insidious. I like that word. It is subtle. It is, it is a kind of gradual bait and switch, a kind of treachery in, in logic. That's the way the enemy works. And you did 15 names of Satan in an hour and 20 minutes. Good job.